You're listening to another episode of Lords of Limited with your hosts Ben Worney and Ethan Sachs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Worney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs, as well as a very special guest this week. We've got Ari Lax on the line. Hello. Welcome, welcome. We're so excited to have you on the show this week. Yeah, really excited to be on. I love the work you guys do on a week-to-week basis, and uh, I'm really excited to talk about Limited. Yeah, we are excited to have you talk about Limited. I am very excited because I don't think I need to play M19 anymore, you guys. We've got like (laughs) back-to-back limited formats on MTGO up until Ravnica comes out. There's like the PT Cube, then there's Chaos Drafts, then there's Cons of Tarkir. I don't need to draft this format anymore. It's the greatest day. I'm very excited. (laughs) I'm looking forward to some Cons of Tarkir draft. I loved that format. Oh, yeah. It it was a really good format. I uh, For a long time, I thought I only liked it because I won a lot at it. And then I, (laughs) I finally went back and did a flashback draft and like beat a dune blast and a wingmate rock with like my five color pile i'm like no this is just as great as i remember it <laughs> oh my god dune blast is the truth that card is absurd um but we do need to check in on that trophy leaderboard ben where are you at this week with m19 i've done a few drafts i'm now up to 46 drafts got a couple more trophies under my belt so i'm up to 14 trophies have a 99 and 38 overall record for a 72 percent win rate I am up to 122 drafts, 33 trophies, 230 to 122 with a 65% win rate. That is such a huge difference, 72 and 65. <laughs> I also have like a third of the drafts you've done. I'm still a baby in M19. I'm, I'm fine to do another, you know, 50 M19 drafts before I'm sick of it. Oh, you say that now. You have no idea what you're in for. 50 more M19 drafts, he says. Ari, have you, uh, have you been playing this format at all? I have preemptively not played it. Uh, I <laughs> Smart choice. The limited Grand Prix were right before the Pro Tour, so I spent all my time testing Modern instead. And mm-hmm. I did exactly one draft of the format where I won every game I played because all of my opponents got mana screwed. And that was about where I decided to call it quits. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a, a fun game of limited magic right there. Um, all right, so we have a really cool episode outlined for you folks this week. And I, I say we outlined it, Ari outlined it. Ari came in with a really sweet idea for an episode and really took the reins and we're excited to let him take those for the next hour. But before we get into that, want to shout out the Patreon page. That's right, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited, which is a place for folks to give back to the show if they so choose. The show will always be free, but if you want to give back, if you feel like we We've given you a little bit of a leg up. If you enjoy me and Ben yelling at each other about Scholar of Stars every week, <laughs> then maybe you want to th- throw some dollar dues our way. And we want to maybe incentivize you to do so. And the base level incentive is the Lords of Limited Discord. That is the place to be to talk about all things limited. We're looking at draft logs. We're looking at what's the plays. We're looking at deck building, like what's the 22nd, 23rd card? What's my mana base? You get to not only pick my brain and Ben's brain, but uh, a whole community of folks just like yourself. Uh, You can also get access to our show notes and a behind the scenes recording for some higher tier donations. And we also want to make sure that we shout out each and every person who joins the first week that they become a patron. So this week, we'd like to welcome Eric, Miranda, Gil, Adam, James, and Christopher. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, we cannot say thank you enough. I Everybody that's in the Discord, you are amazing and you are keeping me connected to Magic right now. I don't have as much time to draft as I want and I frequently check in on the Discord like three to four times a day and that's like my Magic fuel right now and I can tell you the Discord is awesome and it is sustaining me. Yeah, my my phone, I like check my email, I check Twitter and then I check the Discord. That's like my one, two, three <laughs> every time I pull out my phone. The Discord is just... A part of my everyday life, yeah. I had our tech guy unblock Discord on like the school's Wi-Fi for me. <laughs> That's amazing. Was he like, what is this? Or did he know? Did the tech guy know? He's in the know. Oh. He's He was, he and I are tight. All right. So for anyone, and I can't imagine this is true, who doesn't know about your successes in the game, Ari, perhaps you could give us a little bit of background on your history with the game. Yeah. So I've been a uh, gold level pro or equivalent for the last 10-ish years. Whoa. Yeah, it's absurd. I, I realized that the 10-year mark for my first pro tour, and I've been qualified for everyone since, is actually like next February. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. And in that time, I've 
Uh, I won a limited Grand Prix in Theros. I made the finals of another limited Grand Prix in Scars of Mirrodin. Won Pro Tour Konzatark here. Made the top four of a couple uh, team limited events in Cons Fate Reforged and in uh, full Return to Ravnica block. Um, and then some other constructed stuff along the way. But uh, I think to get to the point of the episode or the, the meat of it is that I think for a lot of those, I was actually just not that good at limited despite winning a bunch. Um, and I just happened to have situations where I understood just enough to be able to perform well and use other skills to do well at those events. But um, for limited as a whole, I think that, you know, aside from the the Theros GPI one, I don't think that any of those I really understood the like entire format that I was sitting down to play. And that's, you know, something I think I've worked on fixing over the last couple of years and that I'd love to talk about. I guess my question is, did you like limited when you were, I mean, you have here in our notes that you said you averaged about a 50% win rate during that time? Yeah. So, so was limited an enjoyable thing or was it sort of a necessary evil for you at that time? I really liked limited when I understood parts of it or like found a, a niche I could exploit. The example I'm thinking of is there was a, I want to say Shadowmore limited where there was like this 15 land mono red deck and I loved drafting that deck or like uh, shards of Alara where there was like five very scripted decks and I figured them all out. I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed it when I understood what I was doing, but often I just didn't. And I found that frustrating. And so was that due to a lack of preparation on your part for limited or a lack of interest in preparing for it? Or what, what do you think the what do you think contributed to that? I think it was a little bit of lack of preparation, but a little bit of more so lack of preparing the right way. It used to be a lot harder, uh, at least in the Pro Tour environment, to do a ton of drafts because the release schedule of Magic Online didn't sync up very well. Mm -hmm. Like the set would come out like a couple weeks after the Pro Tour on Magic Online. So you'd have to find eight physical people to sit down and draft and then somehow compile that data into something meaningful or look at what was going on. And that made it harder. But at the same time, like it was there if you wanted it. And I don't think I really looked at what was going on the right way. So is it fair to say that you started very much as a constructed player and then developed your limited skill set? I think so. I think that if you're good enough at constructed and get like a baseline idea of what's going on in limited, you can still do fine. If you understand a deck or two or three in a format and you can draft those, you'll get into spots where you get to draft those decks a couple times at an event and do well enough that it works out. It's just not consistent. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, for sure. So I, I guess before we get into the like how you started to teach yourself to get better at limited, I'm curious what your strengths as a magic player are, because I feel like that's going to like hold over from like, these are the things I feel like I do well. And perhaps those are in a Venn diagram going to overlap with some things that exist in limited. And maybe that's how you started to bridge that gap. So what is your like your strengths as a constructed player in magic? So I'm really good at if there's like a clear generalized game plan, just like executing and slightly adapting it up the line. So in limited, that would often come up in like your average sealed deck where it's just like a mid rangey battle where there's like no defined game plan at any point, I'd be terrible at. But I could pull out some of these like insane sealed decks that I would build over the years where like I was somehow like a definitive four color control deck in a sealed deck and I just crushed everyone at that tournament with it. And so like you can see that in like a lot of how I did limited early. I also in constructed at least tend to do really well in situations where I get to be, you know, the traditional like blue player situation where you have more information or get to be more reactive. I tend to bias towards those kinds of decks or on the other side of the spectrum. I like being the like low ball aggressive deck, a lot of red or blue going on in terms of the, the ideologies there. Yeah. So it, and it sounds like maybe you you weren't super comfortable with limited. And then, you know, in the show notes, I see here, you know, it seems around Battle for Zendikar, you sort of turned your approach around. And that's what we're going to outline in this episode. But prior to really deciding to try to get good at limited, what were you doing to prepare for limited? I think the same things everyone else was doing, you know, just like ranking cards and kind of talking about colors and decks. And it's the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, you know, like in Dominaria, there's like, the blue control deck and like you can draft green black saprolings but uh i never really asked questions beyond like yeah there's like these three archetypes and you should be first picking this card those are the kinds of questions you should be asking but there's just more to it that uh is really important in helping you when sometimes you have to draft white black well, I think that there's more to it is a perfect way to transition into these six points that you have outlined. So what do you have for us here at number one? So number one, um, the biggest switch was kind of viewing it as uh, learning to draft the hard way. I 
assume a lot of people have seen that, but it's an old Ben Stark article where he basically describes the process of drafting to draft the open deck and not pigeonholing yourself into a couple, you know, if you went to Dominaria and you knew how to draft like blue red and green black and mono red aggro, those might be like the three best decks in the format, but you also need to be ready for the drafts where white is open and you should be drafting white green tokens or whatever. And realizing that uh, the, the best place in each draft is almost always the open archetype and planning as if you need the knowledge of how to do that in all the different spots. That was like the big shift up in uh, my limited game. So what were the conscious changes you made from what you had been doing before to starting to draft the hard way? So you, I guess I assume was reading this article, the sort of springboard for this, or was there something else or was it a combination of things? I think that it was actually, um, that article came out a couple of years even before this, I think that article came out in like 2013. And the first pro tour I really started working on limited this way was Oath of the Gatewatch. And then I really kind of figured this out at Shadows over Innistrad, um, which I think is like the perfect format for that because that was like a really build around draft format uh, where like the green blue deck was this investigate clues theme deck. And the blue red deck was like an all in spells deck that would play seven creatures. And the green black deck would like self mill itself to no cards in deck. And you really had to understand how each color pair uh, went about what it was doing and understand like how to draft them if they were open. And there were really there were color pairs that were just terrible if you tried to draft a normal deck and just absurdly good if you knew how to tune even the last few cards to make an actual archetype. And after seeing how that went really well, I think at that Pro Tour, I went 5-1 in Limited. And I felt like both of my decks were like really on points and really different sides of the metagame and different like spreads of archetypes. And I was like, oh, well, I also could have known like how to do X, Y, and Z. I was like, why don't I just do this every single time, even when it's just stuff like my white-red deck should have this kind of curve and six interactive cards or whatever. And... I started laying out what a successful deck in all the different colors would look like for like every set. And then sometimes there's uh, there's exceptions. You know, I mentioned mono red aggro in Dominaria. It's not really uh, like a color pair, but it's an archetype that's was relatively repeatable and something that you should know about and not have to kind of derive on the fly. It sounds like you had a much broader or you started to have a much broader understanding of all of the different moving pieces of each set. And I feel like that's a lot more, or as more and more sets come out, that's a lot more important because there aren't really unplayable cards in the like general sense in terms of like, that you like never include this. It feels like there's a small subset of those in modern magic sets. But most of the time it's like, yeah, this card isn't great unless you have the blue red spells deck, in which case this is a fantastic card, but you don't need to prioritize it because you'll get it 11th pick or whatever. Yeah, or often the reverse. I'm thinking of Yavimaya Sapphire and Dominaria in green red. In every other green color pair, it was really important and really good. In green blue was multiple blockers and green black was obviously saplings. But in green red, it just wasn't that good so if you were in green red you'd take like a bailoth gorger over it 100 percent of the time yeah for sure so like going into the draft knowing what your optimal version of the deck looks like and what kinds of cards lead you to victory is really key to making a lot of those small decisions that make a huge difference over the course of a draft and if you can do that for you know as many archetypes as possible before you sit down that's really useful and the one thing i want to mention about this is that even if you don't get to do now, maybe you are going to play an important draft event after only 10 drafts. One of the things that I found really useful was being able to basically steal a lot of information about what my opponents did that beat me. I'm thinking specifically of, so Return to Ravnica, uh, one of the color pairs, Golgari, no one could figure out how to make it work. And one of the things I did when I was playing is I back then you could watch Magic Online replays. And I eventually just kept watching replays until someone did something in that color pair that looked like it worked and then just replicated that over and over. Whoa. So wait, you could go back and watch replays of games that you weren't in? Oh, yeah. This used to be before draft leagues. So you could watch all the replays of everyone else in your draft pod. Oh, that's right. Oh, my God. There's so much about like old Magic Online that I forget. Yeah. The different eras back when you had to like sit at the table or whatever. I can't even remember that. That sounds so terrible. Even what you just mentioned about like, yeah, well, the sets used to come out after the Pro Tour. I was like, oh, yeah. And that just happened like two sets ago. I know. <laughs> so 
getting back to Yavimaya Sapperd too, like a card like that in Dominaria. So we're talking about drafting the hard way, you know, the cards that get better in these certain types of decks or maybe get worse in another type of deck. Is that sort of how you're reading signals? And like, do you do like how do how do pick orders factor into drafting the hard way for you? Are you a big fan of pick orders? Are you not a big fan of pick orders? And how do you go about sort of reading signals to try to decide what's open when you're drafting the hard way? I guess the first part is I think pick orders are great. So I think that once you've defined how you like know, like if you know what your different, your your four different green decks are going to look like, you can make those decisions after the point where pick order matters. And then suddenly the hardest decisions you have to make in the draft is finding what the open position that you need to take is and using pick orders for that and understanding what more powerful cards are maybe getting to you at different points of the draft is really important. Another thing with pick orders is like understanding uh, your early picks. And when you're given the choice between a good white card and a good black card, and you already have two white cards and a blue card, understanding how much power you're giving up and that kind of stuff. So I really, really like pick orders. Uh, I think that they are underrated these days. And then in terms of signals for the Sapper example, I think that that card is still a perfectly fine green signal, even if it's not the best card in your deck. You should be paying more attention to kind of the reverse. If there's a card that you receive, like a late wild onslaught, that will tell you green is open, but more specifically that you know green white might be more open because that's a huge payoff spell for that archetype. Right. So and that and that's where you reap the benefit from like trying to figure out what cards overperform in certain decks so that if you know that this card goes well in that deck, you can try to anticipate that that deck's open then. Yeah, the the signal thing, I guess, is kind of a mix of the two where it's because you have a good pick order that's well laid out and you have an understanding of what cards are going to outperform the rest of the set. You can understand what cards you're getting a little later and that can direct you into the right colors. Or you can see cards that are going to overperform in a specific archetype coming your way and understand that you are receiving the support to move into that archetype. And that's often sometimes, even if one of the colors is a little cut, because sometimes maybe the archetype cards for that color aren't things that other people are going to take and you might end up with them even if you know the person to your right is drafting white red you can end up with the green white cards awesome that makes total sense to me so you know getting past drafting the hard way what what's the sort of next pillar we've got here as far as like how you were trying to get good at limited one of the things that i kind of learned in reverse is that i think that the concept of unplayable colors or color pairs or best color pairs is kind of overrated these days. Specifically, this started with Battle for Zendikar because that was like a once in a decade outlier where don't play green was true. Mm -hmm. And I think that we just haven't seen sets since then where that's the case for various things. And maybe a color is worse, maybe a color pair is worse. But in general, having an understanding of everything and finding the open lane is just more important. Being in the open position is just better than having the best deck off Often enough that it's worth not playing that way. Uh, and sometimes, you know, a set will have a color combination that is bad enough that you should almost always avoid it. I'm thinking of like green, black, and Ixalan just didn't exist. You just shouldn't do that. In Oath of the Gatewatch, blue white was just unplayable unless you had three reflector mages. So that might happen, but you should never assume that going into a set and you should never, even if it's obvious that like another color pair is really good, you should always think about how to draft whatever color pairs might end up in your lap. Like specifically what comes to mind for me right now with M19, like I feel like white has been the strongest color since the get go. And I feel like just now, like within the last week or two, like everyone seems to be trying to draft white. And I just have been finding myself like actively looking for a reason to not get into white because I get cut out of it so often. Yeah. So you were talking about like metagame shifts here. Yeah. That's one of the advantages of having this, you know, knowledge base is that if the metagame shifts in a certain direction, it doesn't really matter to you because you can just draft black red and make a black red deck that works fine. And you're not tied to, I need to draft star crown stag with another color. So were you finding yourself before this, like just going into drafts thinking, well, blue white is the best deck in this format. So I'm going to draft blue white and then ending up with either a fantastic deck at the end of that or like a medium to bad deck with blue and white cards in it. I think that it's a bit of both where I would bias a little too much towards the best decks and end up with the worst versions of them or the reverse where I would 
find out the open colors and then just draft a bad version of that deck. I can think of a couple events where I was like, I feel so smart. I drafted this creative version of this archetype and it just, it wasn't good. <laughs> and I should have known that in advance. So it's not enough to know, like to be able to recognize, ah, I'm seeing blue cards and white cards, but like, what does blue white want to do? Is it blue white skies? Is there an artifact matters theme? Like going back to that pick order of like how pick orders can change based on what cards go up in value, what synergies exist in a certain archetype, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. That's a lot. Like there's a lot of steps there to like that drafting the hard way thing to that understanding what's open for your seat. And I also think, I mean, we've talked about this on the show before, but drafting staying open in a draft, I think to me means multiple things. Not only does it mean like recognizing what's being passed to you, but also like trying to leave yourself open to future possibilities, that sort of thing. The example you gave where you said, well, you have two white cards and a blue card. And do you take the like great black card or the good white card to stay more open for what might be coming your way down the line in this pack or opening up in the next pack? Yeah. I'm definitely someone who is more prone than the usual person to have four cards of four different colors and then move into a color based on my sixth pick. That is staying open in a way. Starting off a draft with four different colors in four picks is not the worst thing in the world. No, it probably means that you're going to put two good cards into your deck. <laughs> yeah, right. And you're probably not going to be scrapping for playables because it's 2018. Yeah, though I think that there are some sets where the first picks are so much better than the cards you'll get later. I think M19 is one of these sets that that borders on it. Yes. That sometimes you might want to commit a little bit earlier. And so in the show notes here, you've got this idea of, you know, we're talking about not excluding options right now that unplayable is more knowing like what certain versions of decks fail or like don't work very well. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So to use Dominaria as an example, I, I think green is a great color to discuss for that format. So if you drafted like a black green deck that was like Baloth Gorgers and large creatures in Dominaria, it often wasn't very good unless it was like some weird four color deck. And if you drafted red green with like Yavamaya Sappers and Sapling Migration and Fungal Plot, that deck probably wasn't going to pan out the way you wanted it to. And just that's what you should exclude is like ending up with those cards in those color pairs. I think that one of the things that specifically with that set too was that if you end up with a lot of enablers or a lot of cards that are better in another color pair than the one that looks to be open, there's a chance you should change colors or you should be changing the cards that you're trying to pick up. But it's almost as if that archetype isn't open if you end up with rampaging cyclops and sapling migrations and not like anything to tie the room together. Different game plans from different archetypes do not combine well into a color pair. That's not a way to draft a format. And so how are you going about determining what the best decks and worst decks are for a format? Like, is that just strictly your own experience? Do you have a team that you play test? Do you talk to friends? Do you listen to Lords of Limited? What, what, give, give us the dish. I listen to a lot of limited content. Uh, we also, you know, we'll have a group of people testing for a pro tour. And these days, it's really easy for one person to do a ton of drafts. And then if you add a bunch of people each doing a ton of drafts together, you can easily end up with, in a week or two of testing, a couple hundred drafts worth of data. And the best part of that is that everyone can then talk about, I drafted a blue-black deck, and I did this, and it was great. I drafted a blue-red deck, and look at this screenshot I took, and it was horrible. Don't do this. There's a lot of roundtable discussions where everyone pitches in. We go through a lot of rounds of compiling information, and then everyone looking at the information, and then talking about whether they agree or disagree, and then recompiling the information. And in the end, we end up with like a, a few different spreadsheets worth of, you know, these are how we think cards are ranked. This is how we think the archetypes work. Notes on like, these are cards that are better in this archetype or this archetype. And it's a lot of information, but it's just the kind of thing you can compile from just talking with people and sharing information with people who have drafted a few times and just accumulating data. Now, once you get all that information, so not only your own experience, but the experience of a lot of your playtesters, does the concept of drafting with preferences come into play for you at all? So we talk about that uh, a lot on the show. Um, so it sounds like you're trying to figure out the archetypes for a format and steer towards the more successful ones or steer away from the less successful ones or be aware of what archetypes you're trying to do. But do you then factor in like, well, these are the things I think I'm good at. So I may try and bias myself, to myself towards XYZ, even though 
that might not be the top tier deck in the format. I think it's more of a, a tiebreaker level kind of thing there. Okay. Where if you end up faced with a couple cards of pretty close power level, so I guess the example would be in Dominaria, if you start off the draft with Inbolus's Clutches and Divination and another great blue card, and then your third pick or your fourth pick, you end up looking at a Rampaging Cyclops versus a Call the Cavalry. Blue-red is generally just a better color combination in that set. I'm going to take the Cyclops there. There's a lot of like small variables that can push signals, but like that's a pretty big tiebreaker there in that spot, which is I'm not losing a lot of card quality choosing one or the other. So I'm just going to choose the one that sets me up for the more reliably good archetype. And I want to emphasize kind of best as a mix of reliably good and like top power level occasionally there's a format where like the raw power of your deck is much more important than the reliability of it i don't usually enjoy those formats i'm thinking of some of the modern master sets not the first one but the second one but usually just like the best decks are the ones that are more reliable and reliable you mean like consistent in terms of how they play out or reliable in terms of like being able to get good commons in the draft what do you mean by reliable uh, reliable in terms of not being defined by having to obtain specific uncommons that you might not have yet or specific high quality commons that other people are going to be fighting over. The blue red decks in Dominaria are a great example of this because there was just a million cards in both colors and you could make like eight versions of the deck out of commons as long as you were receiving playable blue and red cards. Man, all this talk about Dominaria is making me so nostalgic. (laughs) So a little bit earlier, we touched on this idea of pick orders, and you said that you thought that those were currently an underrated tool, and they're a really good way to understand signaling. So I think... And I I think we probably feel the same way, but I want to sort of hash out some, you know, finer points here that I think pick orders are perhaps overrated in the sense that I think a lot of people focus on like pack one, pick one, would you take card X or card Y or like, all right, I have blue and white cards, pack two, pick one, do I take this card or this card? And what I feel like I say a lot on stream or on the podcast or in discord is it's a bit more flexible than that. Like I need, I need more information to know perhaps what this is because this pick is a lot closer. Like talking about cards in a vacuum is only helpful to an extent because once we get a couple picks deep in the draft, pick orders kind of go out the window in terms of like a static pick order. And it's more about what we've been talking about, like how cards fit into certain archetypes or how cards go up in value based on the cards that you already have in your pile or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you get the old Twitch chat member that comes in and is like, pack one, pick five. Do I take card X or card Y? And I'm like, okay, well, great. What were your first four picks? Like that's necessary information. Yeah, I agree. I think that the, the most important thing you can learn from a pick order is the way we kind of try to lay it out, or at least I try to lay it out is there'll be larger scale tiers like the classic A, A minus, B, B plus kind of grades. But even within those, understanding where there's big power level gaps so that if you end up in that spot, like I was mentioning, where you have two white cards and a blue card, and then you're past a pack with Lich's Caress and Pegasus Courser, how much power level are you really giving up to take the Pegasus Courser there? To look at that example, we had done this exercise for M19 for the limited GPs, and I think that uh, Lich's Caress is a significant step up from Pegasus Courser in that spot. And that's the kind of thing that given that little information, I'm just willing to take it. But, you know, maybe something that's a little closer, like an Electrify, I'm just going to ignore and just stay the course. Trying to understand those gaps in power level is a lot more important than like arguing whether Gravedigger or Sift is a better card if they're close enough. So it's about knowing like within the context of having to choose between them, what would you choose versus like, well, pack one, pick one, which is better? It's a bit of both. It's it's kind of a non-precise way of doing cost benefit of like each line you can take at any given point. But that's a lot of what drafting is, though. Yes, there's a lot of decision points where you have to make that exact same decision every single draft. I would imagine that as someone coming from the constructed side of things, that navigating those micro decisions, those little like which B plus card is better in this situation is something that appeals to you or something that you are very good at or both perhaps? I don't know if I'm necessarily good at it in the abstract, but once I have all the information on paper, I am really good at applying it. So that's what I was talking about where if I have a generalized plan, I'm pretty good at applying it and adjusting a little bit for it. 
And that's where I think I get a lot of my equity in draft is just using information that I've gathered and applying it over the course of 42 picks. Yeah, that's the best feeling in the world when you feel like you're more informed about the format than the people you're drafting with. Like, I feel like that's where my biggest edge comes from in limited also. I feel like a lot of that stuff is maybe intuitive for me. I think this is a leak in my game, you guys, that I don't like hashing out the nitty gritty. Like maybe I have it internalized in some way, but when people are like, well, I think this is a B minus and not a B. I'm like, well, we both think it's a pull into blue. Why do we have to argue about this? I think that having leaks like that is okay as long as you're aware of them. And then at some point, maybe figure out a piece or two of information that helps actually qualify what you're trying to say. Uh, so like one of the things I know that I'm that way with is those kind of like six pick, I'll just see a card and I'll just be like, this color's open. And if someone's looking at my draft, they're just gonna be like, how do you know that? And it's like, well, because like if I went back and looked at my draft log, it's like, yeah, because of this, I saw this pack looked kind of like it wasn't open and this looked like this was open. And they're just like, yeah, but that could all be random. It's like, no, no, I'm pretty sure I'm right. It's the kind of thing that you should be able to do like a blackjack style card count on, but I, I don't know how to do that. And so, you know, you're, we're talking about pick orders right now and you're talking about, you know, you've got this team that you test with and you're compiling a couple hundred drafts worth of data and sharing information. If you're just somebody that's like a listener of our podcast that's trying to figure out, you know, what your pick order should be. How would you go about doing that? I would compile all the sources of information that you have, but I'd specifically avoid or uh, I would downgrade information from uninformed sources, not like worse players, but I think so Frank Carson produces his preliminary draft pick article and it's compiling three set reviews and a web app. But that's all people who haven't drafted the set. And one of the most important parts of rating cards in draft is playing with them and then realizing they're better or worse than they look on paper. That's where the edges are. And I think that you want to specifically move towards looking at information about like people after 10 or 20 drafts saying this card is under or overrated is probably more valuable than just looking at raw set reviews. I think that this is also, to plug the Discord, a great opportunity for people in the Discord to work on something like this. I think that just having people who are putting in the numbers is really important to this process. I could easily see something like this coming out of that. Yeah, for sure. We actually have uh, someone going through and looking at our trophy decks and seeing like what has been working for people. But I definitely think going into more nitty gritty things based on the amount of activity in that Discord is definitely something that could come out of that. And so are you interested in, you know, we're talking about pick orders and how pick orders might change over the course of the format past the Pro Tour? Like, do you still draft the limited format? Are you still interested in how the metagame shifts? Or once the Pro Tour is over, is that kind of done for you? I think it depends on the event schedule, honestly, or how good the format is. Uh, there's a few formats that I've just kept drafting after the fact. Not a ton lately, because Dominari was so late in the season when the Pro Tour was held that I had already you know, done my 40 or 50 drafts of the format and needed to do other things. But I think that if you have this understanding of the different archetypes, I think that unless you totally missed an archetype on your outline of the format, which can't happen, I think that uh, adapting your pick order it's very slight. The main things, you know, like I said, if you missed an archetype, having to go back and figure out where that would fall, for example, like if you didn't know about Slitherblade in Amoncut and figuring that out after the fact, that would be a huge adjustment. But the main thing might just be understanding or reading signals better about cards that other people have caught up on. One of the things with signals is, you know, if you think a card is great, but everyone else thinks the card is just okay, and you get past it fourth pick, that's not really a signal. But if everyone starts thinking that card's better, then it starts becoming more of a signal. So that's really the kind of thing you need to have your finger on the pulse of the metagame to figure out. So if you got, let's go to Hour of Devastation as a draft format. People didn't know about the Oasis Ritualist five-color deck until much later on in the format. So if you knew about it at the start, and you got a fifth pick Oasis Ritualist, that wasn't a signal green was open. But you know, seven weeks into the format, that was a go sign. I feel like that's a reason why pick orders are important in addition to all the things we've been talking about, but also to understand where other people are in terms of ranking cards. I feel like that's a good way to get a pulse on what perhaps the community at large feels is, you know, a signal third pick or a signal sixth pick or not in some cases. Yeah, I think that this is like a really typical thing to see every set is we'll have like 
one or two above average, but not stellar cards, you know, like in the C plus range. But we'll go through our pick order and we'll make a comment about this is not a signal. Other people don't like this card. You'll just get it. I think for a long time, like Caligo Skin Witch was like that. That's tough. I mean, that's we're back to all that, like the nitty gritty and the like slight gradations or the differences between C pluses or the differences between B minuses. That's a lot of tiny pieces of information to parse out in a draft. And that can change week to week, depending on how deep into a format you're playing. Yeah, I think I might be underrating how the pick order is important, but just as important are the comments that are made on like every single card. So there's a lot of information between the lines that's important in the process. Yeah, for sure. Like just what's beyond the letter grade. Ooh, that's such a good like episode title beyond the letter grade. All right, well, just let's keep it on the down low. We'll use it later. It'll be fine. <laughs> uh, moving on to your next point here, all right? You talk about virtual card advantage. What, what do you want to let us know here? Yeah, so virtual card advantage is the concept of when, in the, the rawest sense, uh, it's the concept of like when one of your cards handles multiple of your opponent's cards. And I'm going to keep using Dominari examples because that format was great and I would hope everyone drafted it a ton. But when you cast Cold Water Snapper, your opponent's two twos are all done. They're just gone. And that's virtual card advantage. They're down, you know, if they have some like medium aggressive white deck, they're just down three cards because you have a four or five they can't ever beat. And one of the things, because limited, because everyone's working with the same card pool and it's hard to get too disparate, you know, the, the classic Owen Turtwell tweet is every limited deck is a form of mid-range. Limited games often end up being decided by virtual card advantage and not actual raw card advantage unless specific cards come up. If each of your cards is just a little better than each of your opponent's cards, it's often just really easy to win. And one of the things that's really important for a format is understanding what the line for an above replacement level playable is. So you're looking for like, is this a card that just ends up in my deck? Or is this a card that is going to outperform the card that would just randomly end up in my deck? And not necessarily like, oh, I can pick this up 10th pick and then it's just in my deck and I don't have to worry about picking it up. But just over the course of the game, is this card going to have the potential to actually be a card that exchanges for something relevant or holds off something relevant or performs a relevant goal in the game reliably? Or is this a card that could easily end up not being worth a piece of cardboard? And that's a question that you have to really quickly answer in a format to really understand what's going on. And sort of everybody always talks about, like, I feel like you're sort of representing the magic number, like as far as like power and toughness, like where's the line like that beats the common removal or like does a two four match up really well against all the three twos? Like so in M19, like I feel like X1 was sort of a magic number that we identified early on that was really not uh, very good. Yeah, there's like a bunch of one threes floating around. There's a bunch of incidental ways to punish X1s like Skeleton Archer or Plague Mare or whatever. There's a lot of ways that that happens. And that can happen at higher power and toughness too. It's like talking about you have here like, is Giant Spider good in the format? Like what makes that a go or not for you? How do you figure that stuff out? I think this is the kind of stuff where you kind of just have to play and look at it. So I guess the example, one of the examples I wrote down was uh, Sailor of Means. And that's a really good example because you had back-to-back formats with that card where it was very different. So in Ixalan... It looked like at first the format was just a bunch of small crappy creatures and maybe Sailor Marines could hold things off. And then as people played the format more, it just became more about making four power creatures with some enhancement of some kind and then killing your opponent with them. And Sailor Marines did nothing. It just entered the battlefield and didn't block a creature with one with the wind on it or a pirate's cutlass or a hasted dinosaur or whatever. And then you move to Rivals of Ixalan and a lot of those linear strategies kind of dried up and the format became more about attacking with small creatures that may or may not be fine. And then all of a sudden, this one four that provides a treasure always stopped one or two of your opponent's cards because they might just be an X one and then also gave you more mana. And that was just really absurd in the format and it really overperformed. So I've really tried. I spent a number of years, every single set, laying out power and toughnesses and trying to guess. And, it, you know, it's better than random, but it's you just have to play. Man, that's so disappointing that there's no that you haven't. <laughs> yeah, well, the secret. <laughs> Darn, the secret is draft. <laughs> it's something that we always try and like hint at or get a feel for in our crash course episodes of like, this is how the removal seems to be matching up and maybe we can predict. But you're right. I mean, it doesn't 
even the X1 stuff from M19, I didn't quite like get fully on board with until playing the set a bunch. Well, and I think, you know, for everybody that's listening at home, that's two great players now we've had on the show, you and Cuneo, that have both just said, like, you need to draft a lot. So one closing comment on the sizing. I think if you're going to try to look at the set and maybe use a little bit of experience, I think that sizing along a curve is more important than just like raw sizing at all points. Because one of the ways you can kind of turn the whole virtual card advantage thing on its head is if you've already gotten your damage out of the creature. So there was a specific old format I'm thinking of where you could get a five mana 4-4 all you wanted. And a five mana 4-4 was just bigger than everything else in the format. But just because of the way the format lined up, it just didn't matter because everything else was like a three mana 3-3 or a two mana two power creature with some ability. And you would have already taken a couple hits and then just be in range of dying. And I think that understanding that if the three twos are three mana, two mana, or four mana really changes how that sizing dynamic plays out, that's something you really have to look for. So you're saying, I just want to clarify that like it may not matter in some way that your opponent's cold water snapper like blanks your two one because it's already dealt six damage to your opponent, that sort of thing? Yeah. Again, you kind of have to get a feel for how fast people die in a format or like what ways to close the game exist um, and which ones of those are even good. But that's just something to watch for that even if creature size looks like it might be suboptimal, there might just be a curve or cost difference that makes it not matter. I feel like that concept really describes why red white seems to be so strong in M19 because you're playing this collection of just like mediocre looking cards. But like when you hit them on curve and you go goblin motivator into two one that deals you two damage into a three two into a star crown stag like your opponent's just dead despite not having a collection of impressive cards. Right. It doesn't matter that like, oh, if I only if I had two more turns, you I'd be fully stabilized. Like that's the whole point. That's a form of virtual card advantage is stranding cards in hand for sure. Yeah. And in M19 in particular, you can look at the set and you know, this is kind of retroactive, but the set doesn't have a lot of ways to ensure you hit your land drops. So it's very easy for people to get stalled at four mana and nothing really stops a three power creature until you start hitting five mana outside of like giant spider or O5 wall, but that's just, you know, that's a one for one trade. You're not stopping multiple smaller creatures. So that's right there why you're, you know, two and a white three two into three and a white three three is just gonna keep hitting them. This next point on the list that you want to talk about is probably the one I'm most excited about is understanding rarities. Can you talk about what you mean here? Yeah. So I think that there's this concept of limited where people tend to say, yeah, just worry about the commons and uncommons because those are the cards you'll see the most. But there's a lot more than that in terms of all the rarities. I'm not going to nitpick between rare and mythic rare because that's just nonsense. Whether you see like a half or a quarter copy of a card per draft is kind of irrelevant. But just kind of understanding how different rarities play into how you should be looking at archetypes and how you should be approaching draft is really important. So the nodes I laid out are common centrics. You know, everyone I think knows this is that if a deck exists at common, it's going to be more reliable than if it exists at uncommon or rare. And your go-to is like finding those decks that you can draft just off of commons, like the white red deck in M19. And then one other thing to notice, uh, and then you can really kind of like pick up on this. So I was talking about virtual card advantage and cards trading is often you'll find a spot where it's like, well, the most relevant cards are largely on commons and rares because they just have more power. But if you notice commons that are regularly fighting with those cards on like mana or just size and just like holding their own in a fight, that's like really important to understanding cards that might be underrated in a format or that are more important in terms of pick orders. And if there's a lot of those commons in a format, I'm thinking of like our devastation. There were a lot of commons in that format that just like hit as hard as an uncommon, like Kenra Scrapper and really stood their own against higher rarities. That lets you know that maybe you have a little more time in the draft to find your colors because a deck made out of pack one's seventh through 14th picks and then two full packs is still going to have a bunch of really high quality cards. Whereas if you did the same thing for M19, you'd just be missing an entire pack of good cards. Now, when you say fighting, you mean like competing in the draft, like you could pick between them and they'd be about the same result in your deck? I mean more like in actual gameplay. So okay. to go back to like the Kenra Scrapper example, a 2-3-4-3 Menace is going to put you in a spot to just beat better cards a lot of the time for no reason other than that it's just a really good rate on the card. Or like that set had Rampaging Hippo, 
was that the name? The the five six cycler with trample. Yep. That was just a card that, unlike, you know, Colossal Dreadmaw just was never stranded in your hand. You could cycle it or cast it, and then when you cast it, it was just this giant thing, and that giant thing was going to win games about as effectively as you could imagine an uncommon to do. So kind of noticing when the uncommons are like hitting above their pay grade in terms of game impact or their, the commons are. So that's really uh, that's a point to understanding when you can afford to take longer to find your colors in a format. That is something I have never thought about. That's really, really interesting. And how do rares factor in here? So rares. Uh, the, so the thing is, everyone's like, you're never going to open a specific rare. But like a lot of the time, the best card in your deck is just going to be a rare. It doesn't really matter what it's going to be. I actually wrote an article about this for my Pro Tour sponsor, Mass Drop, where I kind of described the concept of like having a general understanding of like how good different rares are is really important. And then like being willing to try rares that you aren't sure about, because there's a lot of weird cards up that rarity. And finding, uh, so the example would be like Sarkon's Unsealing. That's just a great magic card, but like it looks weird. And the first time you read it, like you can take a guess at how good it is, but who knows? So when I'm testing for a tournament, I'm very willing to take a risk on a rare and just see how good it is. And if it doesn't end up good, like maybe even just try it again if I think there's another shot at it being good somewhere. So I think that that information is really key to ending up with decks where you have a great card to win with is finding just more great cards in the format or finding cards that aren't as great as they look. And is there any way to like, I don't know, apply these concepts in draft other than feeling like you can be a little bit more open if you feel like the commons can go toe-to-toe with the uncommons more often than not, or if you feel like there's way more busted rares or way fewer busted rares in the format. Is there any way that that impacts your draft at all? In the busted rares example, I think that you you can start skewing towards, you know, cancels or mind rots or more sealed-oriented cards. I think that some of that skewing often comes in at the uncommon uh, level, where you end up saying... I know this draft archetype is uncommon-centric. So to use green, white, and Dominaria, that color combo I felt was really uncommon-centric because you needed some payoff for having a bunch of creatures. If you started the draft with a Song of Freilies and then you picked up a Wild Onslaught, all of a sudden, that was the key that unlocked that archetype. And suddenly, you could just draft that without worrying about it. But if you just didn't have those cards and you started picking up white and green cards, that's when you might just not be as committed to the color pair and move into something else. So I think that knowing what archetypes are uncommon-based might be the most important part in terms of skewing your draft on a draft-by-draft basis. Well, that also sounds to me, that brings me back to like one of your earlier points, which was like we talked about not like trying to avoid drafting bad versions of like a color pair. So like knowing that those uncommons in white, green, and dominaria were the key to making that a deck tick. Like if you got those early, exactly what you're saying, you know, you had the green light, but you might have warning bells going off in your head if your first five picks are common white and green cards and wondering, you know, if you're going to get there, because then you just have to hope you get past those uncommons or your deck might not come together. Right. Or you can start looking at another version of the deck if it exists that skews away from those synergies. Yeah, it feels like green red from M19 is a great example, because I mean, not only is Sarkhan's Unsealing, I think a pretty important card for that deck, but to a lesser extent, or maybe to more of an extent, considering it's at a lower rarity, Colossal Majesty is pretty important for that deck. I feel like green red decks without those cards i'm often like how did you get into this deck like what made what made you want to do this this is just a pile of of cards that aren't really doing anything together yeah and one of the things that you know sometimes it's right to take that risk i think m19 might be one of the formats where that's just the case because so the cards are so flat and power level aside from like the top few cards just even having the potential going into the last couple packs of you know i could get the colossal majesty is pretty nice. And maybe you don't, and maybe your draft fails, but you took a calculated risk then. So maybe the answer in that case is just, oh, well, you know, I saw these colors were open. I thought maybe I had a shot at this great deck. I think that's especially true of white green as well with uh, Seder Enchanter. At the same time, you know, if you're starting, it's like, oh, red and green are open in pack two. Like, maybe that's not really what you want to do if you don't have the cards for it. So moving on to your last point here about losing being a lesson. What's this all about? Yeah. So the thing, you know, I talked about being willing to like risk a draft and take a rare and see how it goes if that's just, you know, a random draft on Magic Online uh, and not a draft that counts for a bit more. I think, you know, I've kept a lot of stats and, you know, I talked about how we keep records of all our drafts. 
And I think that discounting a couple formats where I just got it from day one, I think prior to the Pro Tour and testing on Magic Online, I win about 50 to 55% of my draft matches. And then at the Pro Tour over the same time span, I won 65 to 70% of my draft matches. And this is like a couple of years. So it's a reasonable uh, sample size where you can say those are numbers that are reasonably close to your expected win percentage. You know, it's not like I did this over three Pro Tours and just got very lucky. And I think that, you know, on one level, you have to be willing to try things and lose if they don't work. On another level, you know, I talked about looking at your opponent's sex and seeing how they beat you. Like, that's one lesson to take out of it. Or not drafting a bad version of an archetype. Well, going 0-2 with a deck that is a bad version of an archetype is a quick way to figure out that's a bad version. There's a lot of lessons to unpack whenever you have a bad draft. Or usually, sometimes, you know, things just happen. But trying to evaluate what went wrong, especially if it's something that you've consistently noticed across your decks, your opponent's decks, other decks you've seen, that's where you can learn a lot of these lessons. I think another takeaway from this for me is Dominaria. Like I started off rough in Dominaria, probably the worst I've started since we started the podcast. And part of that was like, I was just like doing it myself. Like I wasn't talking to Ethan as much because I was like a lot busier. I was just trying to jam my own drafts. And then like I didn't, I wasn't getting in other information outside of my own experiences. And then as soon as I started talking to Ethan more and engaging in the discord more, my, I figured out more quickly what I was doing wrong. So if you are struggling, I think at the beginning of a format, like that's the time to try to talk to people to try to figure out like the format started clicking for me in Dominaria when I, I had Ethan look at one of my draft logs and he was like, dude, you passed a divination. Why? Like, why'd you do that? Divination's a good card. And I was like, it is <laughs> like, I just hadn't like made that leap about the format yet. This concept of like trying to figure out why you're losing is I think something that is very near and dear to the show's heart. We did an episode a while ago that I would encourage any new listeners to go check out called Making Your Own Luck, where we looked at a lot of scenarios that magic players often brush off, or I think some less good magic players often brush off to variants or things that are out of your control and trying to focus on things that are in your control. So I'd be curious to hear what sorts of things you do. Like, how do you know when you go O2 drop or O1 drop that it is a bad version of a deck or that that rare is perhaps worth building around again or is not worth building around again. It feels like you have to have a pretty good handle on what's going on in the game, in the draft and with your own play patterns. Yeah, this going back to things that are just kind of instinct, that's this might be one of those things too where, you know, even like let's say you get mana screwed two matches in a row like well, did you draft a deck that's especially prone to that because it relies really heavily on casting a five drop on turn five? Maybe that's a thing. Or did you just draw the wrong cards in your deck and get mana screwed? You know, in the first case, you know, maybe if you need to hit your first five land drops, that's like an 18 land deck. In the second case, maybe you should just draft again. I had this problem a lot trying to figure it out in Rivals of Ixalan Limited because I was drafting a lot in the competitive queues. And the common trend of the competitive queues was that you would just hit someone who had three Legion Lieutenants and then die because they played Vampires and Legion Lieutenants every turn of the game, <laughs> which, you know, is frustrating. And I had no idea what to do about it besides draft more removal. And the removal was already at the top of my pick order. So maybe there isn't anything you could do about that. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, I think, downfalls or one of the downsides, I should say, of drafting in leagues is that, like, if you get to the finals and rivals, you might be facing a vampire deck more often than perhaps if you were drafting in pod or playing in pod. Yeah. And I will say that is a bit of a caveat on like a lot of the stuff I discussed today is that my, I'll do these practice in the leagues, but my goal at the end of the day is to be able to win a potted draft at a premier level event. So I can see that, you know, I haven't done any of the math behind it. I haven't looked at all the details of it, but maybe the, plan deviates a little for Magic Online, where, you know, maybe there's met a little more metagame exploitation and a little less kind of going in blind against seven random people where that one draft matters a ton. You know, on Magic Online, if your win percentage over 25 drafts is two thirds of the time you 3-0 and then a third of the time you 0-3, that might be a really desirable thing compared to at a pro tour where you may just be happier if every single draft you go to one. I haven't really evaluated that and it's something I want to think about in the future. And it's this is one of those problems where I know I'm going to like look at it 
and be really surprised either that it didn't matter, like it shouldn't matter at all in theory, or it matters a lot more than I thought it did in theory, but it's worth thinking about. For sure. This is like a ton of information we've just unpacked here. I, I, have, a, I have a bigger picture question for you about all this. Like this, this is loads of good information. Did you, so along your journey to try to get good at limited, like, is this stuff that you just thought about and learned for yourself? Like, did this come from lessons from friends that were good at limited? Like, how did you sort of compile this knowledge base to try to get yourself good at limited? So some of it was just, I ended up working with people who were good at limited in maybe a less structured way. And I took a lot of lessons from that, or maybe who were good at limited in a really structured way. And I took what I liked from what they did and just kind of improved it. So an example of that would be uh, the first pro tour that I was like actually looking at this and trying to do better. I was actually working with Ben Stark and I took a lot of like how he talked about limited and a lot of the drafting of the hard way stuff from like actually working with him out of that. And I was also working with um, Justin Cohen, the pro tour fate reforged finalist and he likes to look at limited in a really structured way so a lot of like the overall like spreadsheets and all that stuff i took from him and like what i thought worked or didn't um some of it is just from the reverse where i worked with people for a pro tour and something failed in the limited process and one of the ways i figure things out is i get frustrated with something that keeps occurring and then yell about it until i accidentally yell out the exact right answer um, <laughs> i've done that with a lot of cyborg plans for constructed decks and that's kind of what happened for a few of these things and so what would you say like has this been you know your journey to get better at limited has this been sort of an integral part to your growth as a pt player i would hope so but at the same time i've also just started doing a lot worse at constructed so <laughs> I think that also has to do with the Pro Tour changing a lot on the constructed front over that time, because that's the same time frame where all the Pro Tours got shifted back a month. So it's, you know, you're playing, you know, your first round opponent is probably just going to be playing the stock black red deck that's just the best deck and less likely to be showing up with who knows what, because no one has seen a single deck from the format. Um, so... You know, I guess that's my next journey is figuring out that half of everything. That's one of the, the things about the Pro Tour over this time span. You know, my first Pro Tour was the first mixed format Pro Tour. And figuring out how to balance both halves of that is its own puzzle. And it's really hard. Yeah, just like as, as soon as you feel like you're figuring out one half of it, perhaps the other half starts to slip or things are changing in the other half that you need to adjust to. That is quite the balancing act. Well, as Ben said, that is a ton of information to unpack. I'm so, so glad that you were interested in coming on the show this week to talk to us about all of these points for outlining all of this for us and for our listeners. And I think it's a lot for people who aren't even constructed players, cough, cough, to take away from the show. <laughs> yeah, there's some great stuff here. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, I'm glad to be on. Like I said, I think you guys just do great stuff. And the way you approach Limited, and I've been listening for a while now, like the way you've approached every format felt like you were just doing a lot of these things already without deliberately calling them out. And that's what I've always loved about your content. So that means so much to us coming from you. Yeah, that is awesome. If folks want to find the content that you create or check you out on social media, where can they do that? So I'm at Twitter and my uh, my name on there is at A-R-M-L-X. I'm a member of Team Mastrop on the Pro Tour, where our team puts out content on a weekly basis, just a rotating schedule of all the people on the team. Myself, uh, Magic Online, Notable Ringer, Tommy Ashton, Benjamin White's the inventor of Blue Red Eldrazi, a bunch of great people on that team. We write about whatever, sometimes limited, constructed. Yeah, so those are the places you'll find me. Sweet. I think that's a great place to wrap us up here. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give that a listen. We have some exciting news. The M19 Treasure Hunt has been completed. Both uh, Generation D20 and Sane Mantis dropped Twitter picks of Aura Ancestral Recall this week. Um, so for folks who don't know, we put out a list of 15 sweet screenshots for M19 Limited. If you unlock five of those, you get entered into a giveaway for a draft set of the current format. And now that all 15 are unlocked, eventually we will schedule a 15-hour stream for me and Ben to do together. Fall break, baby. Fall break. All right, we've got we got a time. We'll plan it out for you. Um, but you can still unlock those still get 
yourself closer to getting a draft set from the giveaway. Um, if you want to grab some screenshots, post them at Twitter at Lords of Limited, hashtag M19 Treasure Hunt. Or if you're not on Twitter, you can email us screenshots at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. That email address is also where you can send us any feedback about the show or any questions you might have. If you want to get in touch with me and Ben individually, I am at Twitter at Lord Tupperware. Ben is at Mr. Metronome. We are on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware and twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome, respectively. You can check out my article series on Cardsphere's blog. That's going to be coming bi-weekly to you. We've got two What's the Plays out so far. We're going to be having a little Cons of Tarkir flashback set primer coming to you in a little bit. So stay tuned for more Lord Tupperware content. Yeah, your last card sphere, what's the play article was gasoline. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, man. Thank you, Ari, for coming on the show again. This was a blast. We really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, great to be on. And we will catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. I'm going to get a lot of crap in the Discord or on stream if I don't defend my boy Sailor of Means here, because I loved Sailor of Means in Ixalan, and I don't know if it was good or not, but I sure drafted that card a lot. <laughs>